Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm so excited to be joining you tonight, and we have a great show for you. We have joining us shortly anthropologist Jamima Pierre and historian Peter James Hudson. But before we start the show, allow me to say the following. That was our new intro. Thank you very much, Catherine Chester, for that graphic design. Thank you very much, Bradley Bloom, for that mashup of Joe Biden. Thank you, Nick Palm, for bringing it all together. Thank you, Tyler, also for helping us prepare for today's show, as always. And thank you all for joining the show. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm not too proud to beg or implore or nudge or nag. Please, if you're watching the stream, like the stream. We are dealing with an algorithmic war. Our corporate overlords are not very fond of a lot of the material that we do, a lot of the things that we cover. So it's up to us to fight back and like the stream, like these people just did. And thank you for saying it's an awesome intro. Really excited to be here. And we're about to bring on our two amazing guests. But first, Brad and I are going to chat a little bit. Uh, so Brad, come join the show, Brad Bloom. Hi, Brad. How's it going? Hey, Katie. Oh, it's going all right. I thought we could do something that I've done a couple times before. It's called Democracy Later. It's where we go over the headlines that Democracy Now! brings us, but we do it a little bit later. And of course, we don't do as many. And I'm going to bring you two depressing things and one piece of good news. How's that? Okay, great. All right. So here's the first one. Study, 338,000 lives would have been saved during pandemic if U.S. had universal health care system. The lives of 338,000 people who died of COVID-19 could have been saved if the United States had a universal health care system. That's the finding of a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. The study also estimates a universal health care system would have saved the United States $459 billion in health care costs in the year 2020. The study's lead author, Allison Galvani of the Yale School of Public Health, told Scientific American... Medicare for all would be both an economic stimulus and life-saving transformation of our healthcare system. It will cost people far less than the status quo. So thank you for all the people who are against Medicare for all. I think one thing that's interesting to point out, they were citing here the impact that the, the amount of people in the United States that don't have a primary care doctor and how much of a factor that is in our insanely high death count, you know, yeah. in the, in this regard, because that affects not only the amount of time people will wait to get health care, but also because they haven't gotten primary care up until this point, they're already starting out in a worse position because of underlying health conditions that would make them more susceptible to infection. And then on top of that, you know, we can go back years that even what was it, the, um, 
I forget the institution, whether it was the Heritage Foundation, but it was a Koch the Rand. brothers. I the think Rand. it was Rand. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, even their assessment of Medicare for all, even they had to admit that over a 10-year period, we're talking a savings of trillions of dollars. I just don't think that at this point, you know how like when, I guess the easiest example that springs to mind would be Donald Trump would say something completely outlandish and on its face, obviously false, but because he says it with a straight face suddenly in the mainstream media, it becomes a debatable thing. Like, oh, is it true? Is it not true? Right. Some people no, say. Some nobody people knows. Saying. Right. That um, this isn't open for debate in my mind. This this question is not an open question. It could be one or the other. Clearly, both on a humanitarian or a moral or ethical perspective, but also on a financial perspective, you know, uh, economic conservatives, if they're really concerned with fiscal responsibility, ironically, Medicare for all, while also being the moral and ethical position, is actually also the fiscally conservative position as well. Some of these figures that we're talking about, you know, over a quarter of a million people died that didn't have to. It's just hard to really wrap your head around and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but this is another area where Joe Biden does have the ability to unilaterally make some changes here, utilizing his presidential authority in the, I might be getting the, the, the names wrong here, but essentially the Emergency Provisions Act. So during a time of emergency, the president has extra abilities. Provisions. Right. That in response to, for example, the pandemic, he could announce universal health care. And not only would that go a long way into reducing preventable death because of the pandemic, but I'd also point out for people who are really concerned about gun violence in this country, this would also cover mental health care. So the ways in which this would improve our society are just many different angles. You want to look at this, it, it would be a positive thing. Yes. No questions asked. Yeah. Our next headline from Democracy Later, and that is SIPRI warns risk of nuclear war is highest since the Cold War. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or SIPRI, or I guess CIPRI, is warning the risk of nuclear war is higher today than at any time since the height of the Cold War. In its annual report, CIPRI says the global stockpile of nuclear weapons is expected to soon rise for the first time in decades as the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom move to expand or modernize their arsenals. The U.S. and Russia possess about 90% of the world's nuclear warheads, which is what makes the media shouting for no-fly zones all the more insane. What do you think, Katie, about, what was it um, uh, Jerome Powell? No, not Jerome Powell. Was it Jerome Powell? From the Fed? No, Secretary of Defense. Austin. Colin Powell. Oh, oh, the, the late Secretary yeah, yeah, of Defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Haitian-American. He had a quote that garnered some attention a while ago essentially saying that in his career, he came to the conclusion that nuclear weapons are useless because of the mutually assured destruction, like they're a pointless weapon, because if anybody uses them, we're, we're all screwed. So, Well, not to play devil's advocate, but that's also why people argue for them, because they prevent that. But that's not going to fall under the auspices of today's discussion, 
which is going to be a very short thing going through headlines. Got it. I'm going to go on to the next one. Here's the good news. Bolivia, Janine Añez, sentenced to 10 years in prison for 2019 coup. A court in Bolivia has sentenced former President Janine Añez to 10 years in prison after finding her guilty of orchestrating the 2019 coup that ousted President Evo Morales, Bolivia's first indigenous president. After the coup, Añez served as Bolivia's president for one year until November 2020. Añez, who is a former right-wing senator, was convicted of making, quote, decisions contrary to the Constitution, end quote. A former Bolivian army commander and police commander were also sentenced to jail for their role in the coup. And that is very good. And if you don't know who Janine Añez is, she's a very small woman who carries a very big Bible. So that's how you can find her in a crowd. Okay, so that was Democracy Later with two downers and one up. So guys, don't lose hope. There's sometimes some light at the end of the tunnel. And I think I'm going to bring in the guests, but not before using that snazzy intro. I'm going to play that and Brad, you'll bring in the guests. Great. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Okay, and we got one guest. We're so excited. And we got another guest. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Fans of the show, viewers of the show will remember that we already had Jamima Pierre on. We're so excited to have her back on. Peter James Hudson is making his debut. Jamima Pierre is the Haiti slash America's co-coordinator with the Black Alliance for Peace and editor at the Black Agenda Report and a professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at UCLA. She's also the author of The Predicament of Blackness, Post-Colonial Ghana, and the Politics of Race. Peter James Hudson is Associate Professor of African American Studies and History at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is the author of Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, it's good to be here, and I loved your uh, snazzy opening. Oh, thank you, thank you. We just, we just launched it, so thank you for that. I wanted to ask both of you about, because this is something that both of you cover in different ways, the recent five-part series published by the New York Times called Ransom, which calculated just how much money Haiti had paid the French for the crime of freeing themselves from slavery. And I want to know what the most important discoveries were from that deep dive. What were not discoveries were kind of old news for people who've been following this, but new news for other people. And also, what was missing or gotten wrong? Why don't I start with that question? And I would say that the the first thing I would say about that piece is that I was actually um, surprised by how good it was coming from the New York Times. And I was surprised by how negative the the reaction to it was. And in terms of the negative reaction, I saw a lot of my um, fellow historians were extremely upset because they felt that they they weren't properly cited in the piece um, and that the the piece was proclaiming that it had done a bunch of new research on this so-called independence debt of Haiti and the history of that debt that in fact had been covered by uh, North American and Haitian historians for years. Um, that was known by, by most Haitian people um, and it had it been known for a while. But I would want, want to kind of counter that narrative of negativity about the piece and, and say that in the first instance, I don't think a lot of that information isn't 
necessarily new. We, you know, many people do know about the, the, the 1825 independence debt, and we can talk more in detail about that in particular. Many people know, um, and, and I've written about, many other historians have written about uh, the U.S. occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934, and the fact that um, during the U.S. occupation, the Citibank, um, or the Citigroup, took over Haiti's national bank and removed uh, $400,000 gold from uh, the Haitian treasury and brought it to Wall Street. But what I think we don't know about that, that history and what the, the New York Times, in my opinion, did a very good job of showing was they really followed the money. They, they traced the history of that debt from 1825 really up to 2004. Um, they, they showed how it, it, uh, uh, it was how it amortized over time, how um, it was refinanced, how it was taken over, um, how it was first issued by the French and then taken over by the United States, how it was paid off. They interviewed descendants of the original bondholders of, of the debt, which I don't think I've seen anyone one do before. Um, and they tried to, to really demonstrate the continuity um, between Haiti being what people like to call the, uh, the, the poorest country in the hemisphere, um, and this initial financial tax that that it received for um, for its independence, for freeing uh, for freeing the slaves, for being the first black republic um, in in the hemisphere, and I think importantly, and again, this is not something um, that that is unknown, but I think it's an important thing that that was said in the New York Times. They linked the debt. And discussions of repayment of the debt by uh, uh, by by France calls for reparations from Jean Bertrand Aristide to the overthrow of Aristide to the coup in two thousand and four uh, that that took him out. So I think that that for the New York Times, who has historically been anti-Aristide, who has uh, historically uh, been anti-Haiti and has contributed to a lot of uh, uh, negative discourse around Haiti and contributed to the, 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 the normalization of negative di diplomatic relations between the United States and Haiti. To, to show those things um, in, in, to its audience, I thought was, was extremely important. And can you speak more on the way that the New York Times or the legacy media in general has contributed to the, what did you say, the poor diplomatic relations between the United States and Haiti? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in the first instance, you have to understand that when Haiti gained its independence in 1804, it meant... Um, kind of providing the first major shock to white supremacy globally. That this is a, a, a country that was made up largely of enslaved Africans um, who overthrew a plantation system. When this independence occurred, there was from, from the beginning uh, of, of Haitian independence, there, there was a, a constant publications reporting on Haiti that basically said, that these Africans, if they were free, would revert back to a stage of primitivism and atavism. They destroyed the civilization in the West, they destroyed the political economy of the West, and they were gonna go back to basically the jungle. This kind of reporting, infused with negative discussions <clears throat> of Haitian religion, of, of Haitian biology, of Haitian blackness, of Haitian violence, has, has suffused Legacy media, Western media, since 1804 up to the present day. You know, we remember during the earthquake, the kind of discussions we saw about Haiti being cursed and this yeah. kind of thing. David Brooks. Exactly. The New York Times was was part of that. There was, um, um, and you can see any 
you know, if you, if you if you're able to go uh, into the New York Times back file, it's easy enough to to find these absolutely racist representations of that. So so on one level, we're looking at a kind of a, a massive cultural discourse that many scholars have have written about. That uh, and I think in particular the the late Michael Dash, who had portrayed Haiti in this negative light. But this cultural discourse about Haiti, this this negative discourse around Haiti, has also had a policy impact because if you think Haiti is primitive. If you think Haitians are animals, if you think Haitians are biologically inferior, if you think that that they're that you as a white Westerner are superior to Haiti, that gives you the justification to enact any kind of policy to uh, to invade, occupy, interfere with Haitian affairs and Haitian sovereignties. And this is partic- particularly uh, what happened in 1950, 1915 when the U.S. invaded. The, the uh, Citibank, as well as the State Department, mobilized all these na- uh, negative stereotypes of Haiti's inability to govern itself to justify the, uh, a stronger power coming in. And this is, has gone on to uh, justify any number of missionary groups going to, to Haiti. This has gone on to, to justify any number of NGOs, whether it's, it's you know, uh, school groups or, or Sean Penn, who have come in and said, we can do things in Haiti better than the Haitians can. And in doing that, it's also said, well, if Haitians can't govern themselves, they don't need a state, they don't need the infrastructure, they don't need a kind of civil society, we'll redirect Red Cross money towards building a Marriott Hotel, we'll redirect funds towards Sean Penn's Malibu mansion, we'll do all these other things, and the Haitian Haitian state will collapse, which will then re-justify intervention. Right. Right. Um, can you just walk people through how this there was this double debt, this double burden? Um, I think I'm not sure that most people, again, who aren't extremely tuned into this, um, know about how perverse it was and how kind of destined to fail um, Haiti was in certain ways. Absolutely. Um, so the, the double debt originates in it, I mean, the, the double debt begins in 1825, but its origins are again in 1804 at the moment of Haitian independence. When Haiti becomes independent, it immediately has a a, a diplomatic problem. This is the United States doesn't recognize it. France doesn't recognize it. Countries aren't trading with it. So how then do you build, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to rebuild your internal economy. You're trying to develop trade. You're trying to develop political relations within the Caribbean, within the Americas, with with Europe. And all of these these major players uh, refuse to deal with you. So Haiti, under its uh, President Boyer, uh, made a deal with France where he said, look, okay, please give us recognition. And France said, yeah, we'll give you recognition, but then you have to pay us back for our losses because of the reparations. So basically, the cost of Black freedom was the price that they had to pay for the enslaved. The, that, that, that there was a 150 million, dollar, million franc loan that, that, uh, or indemnity that um, France requested or imposed on, on Haiti in order for them to uh, 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 give, to grant Haiti diplomatic recognition. Um, and, and that money went to pay back slave owners effectively as well. And this is something that the, the New York Times found out. Some of that money did go to the French government. It wasn't just to, to private sources. So the, the, the reason it becomes the double debt is because they, um, not only did they have to pay that indemnity, but because 
the, the Haitian treasury at that time in 1825 was so depleted, they had to borrow the money from France to pay France. So it becomes a double debt in, in that sense. And so the, the interest payments on, on that, I mean, I think they're kind of recycled and, and transformed over the years. I think the original debt, according to some, is paid off by, uh, by the 1870s, um, but the loan kind of uh, is extended and um, uh, refinanced by, by the Citibank in the 1920s. And then again, it's finally paid off by, I think, 1947. Um, but when you start to look at the kind of the, the interest fees, uh, the cost of the loan, um, I think the New York Times, uh, I don't have the figure right in, right in front of me, calculated that it was between something like 10 and $100 billion of potential losses to the Haitian economy over that time. So you have from the moment of independence, the, the inability to, to, for Haiti to, to generate uh, an income. Um, and, and that leads to Haitian underdevelopment. And then you see this long-term tax that's imposed on, on the country um, that, that, that further depletes the Treasury. And again, the New York Times, um, you know, I've, I've written a lot on the U.S. occupation of Haiti and on, on the, the Citibank in Haiti. One thing the, the New York Times was able to do is to calculate the fact that during the U.S. occupation, something like 25% of the Haitian Treasury was going to pay uh, officers of the occupation you know, of, of the entire hit, uh, treasury during those years. And so, you know, you can see this money, you can see a kind of historical pattern of, of money being siphoned off uh, of, of um, the, 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 the labor of Haitian pe peasants to, to pay forward powers. It's interesting because I kind of had forgotten, I think, that there were basically two removals, jumping way ahead, two removals of Aristide, who had become the president of Haiti, and they revisited this in this report. Can you also lay out for people, either one of you, why and how he was removed? I have to say the, the, the new set of critiques that came out against this, um, the New York Times report is um, um, led by Michael Debert, <clears throat> who has written quite terribly about Haiti um, um, in, since the late 19, you know, in the late 1990s, but especially around Aristide. Um, so they wrote an open letter basically saying that the New York Times misrepresented the, the U.S. government's relationship with Aristide and basically said Aristide was this monster that they, they created, that they made him out to be back in 2002, 2003, right before. But one of the key things to me is, is the fact that the New York Times actually acknowledges that this was a coup d'etat against Aristide, um, which most of us knew, right? If the WikiLeaks papers reveal this. So I, no matter what Michael Debert and who's, who's reporting on Haiti to me is extremely problematic and, and really racist in terms of how he represents the dark-skinned Haitians and especially the Aristide supporters. I have to say that because it's really problematic. And, and so Michael Debert was really the, the, the spokes, the, the, the local, I guess the Western journalist spokesperson for the, the elite, the opposition against Aristide and the working class people. But the point is in 2004, I think, I think it's important to talk about because it is, 2004 is a 200 anniversary of, of, Haitian, of the Haitian um, independence. And it was really, it, I think it is on purpose that they picked that timing to remove Aristide from power. And, and, and he was removed and he, he was kidnapped um, and but before but before I talk about that briefly, what what's important is that January two thousand and late December January no January late January early December early early February two thousand and three there's something called the Ottawa Initiative 
and I don't know if people talk about that, where Canada, France, and the U.S., and this is a liberal um, government of Canada, uh, Jean Chrétien, right, um, and organizes a two-day conference in Ottawa. Basically, it's about, and it was a secret conference that was later reported by a, 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 a magazine like Chalite in Quebec, um, it's basically saying that there's there's a there's a there's discussions including the need to remove Aristide uh, and the need for a potential trusteeship over Haiti. So this is January 2023. I mean 2003, and then you have in April 20 2003 you have Aristide announced on the anniversary of the death of 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 of, of Toussaint Louverture, which is one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution, that that France needs to pay reparations. And to him, and this is 2003, he said the equivalent was $21 billion, $21 billion, $21.6 billion um, in terms of, of current, current um, the, what the amount would mean currently. And so he did that. And then later on in that year, October 2023, he actually did had a four-day conference in the National Palace of Haiti with international scholars and historians to actually talk about this, um, you know, what this meant to go after these um, these funds that that France basically took from Haiti. So this is all in the lead up to you know uh, the coup d'état against Aristide, where you have the use of uh, the national well, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is the the CIA soft power wing, um, funding so called student movements. And I have to say quickly, one of the students that were funded by the NED um, became Prime Minister right um, Claude Joseph. Um, <laughs> um, you know, right before, um, right, right when um, Jovenel Moise was assassinated last year, um, almost a year ago. So I have to, so, so, so you have all these student groups, supposed student groups funded by the uh, uh, IRI, the International Republican Institute and the National Endowment for Democracy. You also have a group of the Haitian elite um, led by Andre Apeid, which are these white and Levantine elites who they're called the Group 184, who were really, um, made up intellectuals and business people who really hated Aristide and hated the um, the grassroots support that he had, and so you have these um, you have the U.S. supporting this, and so it looks like there are these protests against Aristide, and there were protests, but then there were counter protests, and so you have to pay attention to how the press reported it. So if you follow the way the New York Times, in particular, and all these Western presses report this, it's it's as if there's this huge uprising against Aristide. Um, you know, this military, paramilitary is about to take over the capital and so on and so forth, when the reality was actually something very different. They were building it up and they were preparing the, 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 the way to take them out. And they land, you know, so they land in Haiti, the Marines, and, and, and people will tell you this, they land and they show up to his house, to Aristide's house, um, and then they tell him he has to pack his things and go. And then they put him um, and, his, and his wife uh, you know, the, the U.S. ambassador, the time, James Foley, they show up at the house and they said that he needs he needs to leave. He needs to leave. And so they escort him to a plane, him and his family. And then at the same time, James Foley picks up the chief justice from his house and say, you're about to be <laughs> you're about to be uh, made president. Right. And so and so so part of that, we have to know the role of the, the of, of, of the U.S. government. is. So you have the U.S. ambassador in the middle of the night, going to pick up the chief justice to, and take him to the National Palace as the U.S. Marines are putting Aristide and his family, you know, on a plane. Um, and then they fly and then they land somewhere in the Caribbean. 
And, and then prime minister of uh, PJ Patterson was prime minister of Jamaica and also head of CARICOM at this point is saying, we will take Aristide and give him asylum. Then you have Condoleezza Rice calling Jamaica and all these places and saying you cannot and have him. And WikiLeaks files also say that all these things are saying we cannot have Aristide in the hemisphere. So, you know, so with all of that, they fly him to the Central African Republic where this um, military official had just taken over and was looking for regularized um, relationships with the U.S. So the U.S. convinced him to take, um, you know, to take this plane. So they land after flying for hours, not knowing where they are, ironically being taken back to Africa, right? And it was, so So this was the coup d'etat. And by the time they removed Aristide, the U.S. and Canadian militaries already had hundreds of officers on the ground in Haiti. So they were already planning for this. And we have to know this. And then George W. Bush sent a U.S. so-called stabilizing mission. And then through the Security Council, the U.S. and France convinced the Security Council to uh, allow a Title VII UN occupation, which is a military occupation of Haiti, that basically they could use force. And so what you have from the end of February, when they remove Aristide from office, you have thousands and thousands of people being killed um, by both the foreign forces, but also those who were against Aristide. And so that's really the story that gets lost because the 2004 coup d'etat is really the beginning of the end of the Haitian state. Because at this point, what we have is a complete um, destruction of, of, of Haitian political society. There, I think there are like three or four elected officials left out of thousands. And then you, so you have like the complete dismantling of, Haiti, of Haitian um, uh, sovereignty with this 2004 coup d'etat. And I think that's an important thing. And they're very much linked to Aristide asking for reparations back in 2003. And if I could just add one, one quick thing to that, I think one of the things that the New York Times did that was important is they interviewed one of the French ministers at the time where he basically said, yes, Aristide was removed in part for his call for reparations. We've never seen any French official admit that in the past. I think that's that's extremely important just to add a kind of exclamation point on Jamin's comments. Did they have to ply him with drinks? I mean, I was kind of impressed that someone would admit to that. <laughs> I wonder I it's, how that it's, it's, it's the arrogance of uh, some of these officials, I think. Because exactly, they're arrogant enough to get away with it and no one will complain because it's Haiti. And I think that's important and no one will complain about it because it's Haiti or they'll look at the, the wrong issues here. And so, again, the, 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 you asked at the beginning of the show, well, what was missing um, uh, from the, 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 the New York Times piece? And I think that what the New York Times did was give us uh, uh, in a way that the New York Times never does, it gives us a bunch of, of openings to think about the U.S. and Haiti, to think about Haiti, to think about foreign debt, to think about military intervention and occupation. Um, I saw many people complaining that they, they, they didn't do, do the proper footnoting, uh, and, and, and that became the discourse. And it's, it's in some ways uh, a bit sad to me that, that the, 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 the series, which I, I think everyone should, should read critically, um, has already kind of moved away from the headlines with, within a week. Like it's, it, it didn't gain the, the, the traction that uh, I think it deserved to have. And any critiques from your perspective, you know, more from the left, let's say? Can I, Jamin, can I uh, jump in again here? I, I, I would say a couple of things. I think my, my critique is in some ways it's not a critique because I'm not sure if this, this is necessarily the, the, the mission or the, purview of what the New York Times should do. But what, what they don't talk about in the piece is that when Citibank is, Haiti, is in Haiti 
1915, and they're involved in the United States occupation of Haiti. You know, they call for occupation, the landing of troops in Haiti. This is not an exceptional moment in the Caribbean in, in, in this period. This is the, the, the high era of dollar diplomacy, where you have uh, Nicaragua is described as the Republic of Brown Brothers because of uh, their presence in the country, and they call for troops in Nicaragua. You have in, in Cuba, um, not only is Citibank deeply involved in Cuba, but the Chase Manhattan Bank, now J.P. Morgan Chase Bank One, uh, is, is involved in the Machado government and, and is involved in, in lending huge amounts of money to uh, the Machado government, knowing that uh, Machado is is butchering political uh, um, opponents and that the um, the Cuban people are starving and that they're never, ever going to be able to pay back this debt. They, they're, they're in the Dominican Republic. They're in... Um, you know, they're, they're all throughout the region. So so I think I wish the New York Times had opened up that kind of window to really talk about this not as as exceptional to Haiti or exceptional to, to Citibank, but part of Wall Street in the Caribbean and Latin America during this period in a whole range of fashions. The other thing I, I wish that they had, you know, in terms of this question of, of reparations, we have to be clear that... Um, that obviously the, the Haiti paid reparations to France, but this is something that's going on throughout the Caribbean after, after slavery. Um, Puerto Rico in 1871, when they abolished slavery, uh, the, the Spanish uh, spent, um, I think, 70 million pesetas that they gave to the, the slaveholders in Puerto Rico. Some of those, those slaveholders own the Baralito Rum Company, which was just sold a couple of weeks ago. So that money is still circulating. At, uh, right before the, um, uh, the the New York Times piece on Haiti came through, we saw the you know some prince and princess of England floating through the Caribbean to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee, and one of the calls there was for reparations for slavery. That that the that um, in the British West Indies, again, slave owners in in, in England were paid millions of dollars uh, for the loss of their property at abolition, and some of that that money, the, some of the debt. Uh, those debt payments were only finished in 2015. And so it's unfortunate to me that this amazingly researched piece wasn't able to open up uh, a broader conversation around reparations and a broader conversation around U.S. and European imperialism in the Americas. Was there anything that could have been done or could still be done in terms of, because uh, I was thinking about this when I was rereading the piece today. It's like, well, what could Haiti have done? I mean, they fought for their independence, right? They overthrew slavery. And then France comes with boats, with ships. Was there any way out of this? Was there any way, I'm not blaming Haiti. I'm just more like from a perspective of internationalist moving forward, because whether it's back then or the more recent debt, or we see this in other countries that are, you know, like, there's a gun to their heads, whether it's through gunboat diplomacy or through debt structural adjustment. Like, what can be done? I know this is a kind of overwhelming question, but do you have any ideas about that? I, I would say the international revolution. Well, I mean, I think that's still to be done. But I think in 1825, I mean, remember how many how many countries in the in the hemisphere have abolished slavery? All of Haiti's neighbors, slavery still exists, and so you're you're fighting against the most. You're this small brand new, broken, poor country fighting against the entire world at, at this point. 
I don't know if they had any any choices. I do think that that we also have to take a fine uh, a kind of a, a look at the debates within the Haitian elite um, that that caused certain kinds of divisions. And one of the things I think that that's important to understand is, and Geneva can speak uh, to this in, in ways that I can't, but the, the division between um, uh, uh, light and dark in Haiti and what that means in terms of, of class formation and the, the formation of the st Haitian state in the 19th century and the betrayal of the African masses by a light-skinned elite, which then enables international powers to kind of come in and, and do what they want, and which is a problem that, that still uh, happens today. So I think, you know, in the, in the first instance, I would say what could have been done differently? Well, the mulattoes might not have betrayed their African brothers and sisters, and, and that might have led to something else. Right, or their mothers, right? <laughs> and so, so, so part of that is, is to, it, I think you're absolutely right. I was going, I was going to say that, you know, and one of the things that actually just reading Gerald Horn always reminds me that the counter-revolution begins as soon as the revolution itself begins, right? And, and so there's a reason why Haiti is really considered the longest neocolonial experiment in the hemisphere, because from the very beginning, um, the, you know, the, the counter-revolution, uh, you know, the Europeans, the Westerners were so upset and so angry at that. They went everywhere. Um, they went after Haiti. So even after losing, they would surround, the U.S. in particular and, and France would surround the island um, over and over again and threaten more invasions and so on. But I do think like, what Boyer did by taking up that loan, by begging the French for recognition is really... A, a, a problem, and I think that's something I think we don't talk enough about Haiti uh, in terms of the, the 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 mulatto elite, and they're not all mulatto, but there you know there's the southern elite. I don't know if we know there was a there was a, a civil war in Haiti, right? The north versus the south after 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 independence, you know, after the fight for the revolution, and then you have um, um, Desalines, who was in the north, um, the you know, especially with the the larger part of the black masses, was assassinated, and that's only when. Boyer was able to come in then and, and try to unify the country. But there is some, there's this lingering conversation that needs to be had about the mulattoes need to always go to France uh, and have and have that kind of white recognition. And I do think we're paying for that to this day. And, and you know, the, 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 the people against Aristide, the people against all these um, um, mass movements have always been these elites, right? The, the mulatto elite who can't stand the mulatto in these days, now we have more Levin, you know, the Levantine elite, the Italians, you know, the Biggio, the, these, these 10 or 12 families that continue to run Haiti. Um, you know, and then they, they, they continue to see the Haitian people as less than. They can see, can you see the masses of the dark-skinned folks as less than. And, and if we don't talk about that, and we don't talk about that in terms of continuous con contemporary politics, then we lose out a, a large part uh, of the story. And that's the other thing for me. I think all these academics were so angry about not being cited um, in the story. They love to talk about old Haiti. They, they like to talk about the Haitian revolution, like the details of the revolution, what was going on, military strategy by Dessalines and so on and so forth, because there's a whole new, you know, there's a, there's a new like Haitian revolutionary studies uh, thing that's taken off in academia. But part of the thing, part of the part of that part of, part of that is that there's a fetishizing of the Haitian revolution in very particular ways but nothing about what happens after the revolution. And a lot of these people don't, don't condemn U.S. and French and Canadian imperialism, don't condemn the fact that the U.S. is 
Um, Haiti is being run now by the core group, which is a group of European countries, uh, and that make all the decisions. Don't condemn the fact that there's a de facto uh, unelected so-called leader in Haiti. That's all part of this long history. And a lot of these, a lot of these academics don't acknowledge that. And, and they take on the U.S. imperial um, views of Haiti and demonize, you know, the priest, Aristide, and, and, but don't really challenge U.S. imperialism in the country. You know, there, there's somebody in your, your chat um, who, who made a, a, a funny off-the-cuff comment that we should invade Citibank. And to some degree, I think where they have a point. And one thing that, that we need to recognize is right now, Citigroup uh, about a year ago announced that they're undergoing what they're calling a racial equity audit, which is what they're, they're doing a kind of forensic analysis of their own ledger sheet to show how they may have contributed to discrimination in lending and housing. And, and I, my question is, well, if they're willing to do a racial equity audit based on the kind of their domestic policies, why not open that up geographically and historically? To this day, Citibank has never made a public statement on the U.S. occupation. They didn't uh, from 1915 to 1934. They haven't opened their archives up to researchers. They didn't open them up to the, the New York Times. Um, and and we, don't, we don't know actually what's in those archives and what what more of them might be there. But we have to understand that Citibank in particular, their, some of their roots are uh, in slave, with, with slave owners in Cuba, with slave owners in Texas, before they get to Haiti. We also know that, that Citibank was profiting from apartheid for, for 30 or, or, or 40 years. They were the last U.S. bank to pull out of South Africa. We also know from uh, uh, the, the Nader report on, on Citibank City published in the early 1970s that they were fleecing low-income communities in, in New York City for years, paying them lower, uh, reinvesting their savings in, in richer neighborhoods, discriminating against women, uh, Latinos, and, and Blacks. And so I think that, that in terms of what can be done now, um, that, that we need to demand that real racial equity audit and demand reparations, or as your, your listener said, invade Citibank. <laughs> Yeah, can organize the troops right from here. <laughs> well, this makes the next thing I want to talk about, which was the sum of the Americas, all the richer of a discussion. Because what we're going to talk about now is uh, I thought we could start by watching a short clip, if that's okay. People probably know that they the Summit of Americas wrapped last week and it was hosted by the United States and held in L.A. And um, Biden excluded Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, and that led to a kind of embarrassing for the United States boycott on the parts of the presidents of Bolivia, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Mexico. So AMLO didn't come. And we have a clip of Biden's press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, being asked about AMLO not coming to the summit. So let's play that clip. Given people are not going to the summit, president of Mexico, president of Honduras, and the vice president recently spoke directly to uh, what does it say about the strength of U.S. influence in the region of these people deciding they don't want to go? Yeah, let me just speak to the president of Mexico very quickly, because I have something in there for you. Uh, we have had candid engagement with President Lopez Obrador, as well with other regional partners, for more than a month regarding the issue of invitations uh, to the summit. 
It is important to acknowledge that there are a range of views on this question in our hemisphere as there are in the United States. The president's principal position is that we do not believe that dictators should be invited, which is the reason um, that he has, um, the president has decided not to attend. Uh, we look forward to hosting Foreign Secretary Ibarra as the Mexican representative, and we welcome Mexico's significant contribution to the summit, to the, to the major summit deliverables. President Biden and First Lady and the First Lady look forward to welcoming uh, President Obrador and, and the First Lady uh, of Mexico to Washington in July for a bilateral visit. By the way, July, I just have to interject, July, of course, is the same month that Biden, who doesn't like dictators, as she just said, Biden will be going to Saudi Arabia in July to meet with the not-so-democratically elected Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But Meeting President Biden and President Obrador will have the opportunity to carry the work forward for the summit. Um, to your second, to your other, to your actual question, I just wanted to make sure I dealt with Mexico because we had a little announcement there. Um, the U.S. remains the most powerful force in driving uh, hemis hemispheric actions to address core challenges uh, facing the people of the Americas: inequality, health, climate, and food security. And so, the president continues to be a leader in the hemisphere. So there you have it. That's why these governments were not invited because the United States hates dictatorship. Right. And so then I, I'm trying to figure out how Ariel, Dr. Ariel Henry, the unelected prime, so-called prime minister of Haiti, who's implicated in the assassination of Haiti's president, um, got not only got invited, but also had a you know, had take took pictures with Biden and 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 his wife, you know, and was very much um, part part of this uh, discussion. And the truth is, the U.S. is a very big power in the region in destabilizing the region, in installing dictators, and and really creating a completely undemocratic um, 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 region, and also through its bullying, right, using the OAS and so on and so forth, and so. You know, we at the Black Alliance for Peace actually called for a boycott of the summit because the U.S. had no right um, to, to have any kind of leadership in this region because of its actions. Um, and, and, and to me, the summit was, uh, was an embarrassment and really demonstrates a major imperial decline um, in the region. And the fact that these small countries were able to, you know, um, turn down, go against. A lot of them came, but a lot of people, you know, these, these six, I think, uh, countries that didn't come represent about 200 million people in the region, but that's a large number of people. And I think it's important that they didn't show up. And I think to me in the future, I don't think the summit of Americas will get, will, uh, I think in the future, the summit of the Americas will probably get fewer people attending. And I think it's great that people are standing up for the exclusion of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. It's really embarrassing also, because I guess since AMLO wasn't coming, Biden was very eager to make sure it was a full event and he wanted to have it, people in attendance. So he had to send a special envoy to invite Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, who is probably the most authoritarian leader of all of Latin America, the most Trumpian. He even said he's, he's, he subscribes to the big lie theory. And he said that Biden's election was suspicious and Biden had to go out of his way to invite him. And he was so desperate to invite him that there were reports that Bolsonaro demanded certain concessions to go, like not being criticized, not being asked about deforestation. So I want to show one more clip where Biden's poor press secretary has to take another question. So here she is, interestingly enough, being asked about Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil. You'll see why it's interesting that that was a question when she answers. 
President Bolsonaro of Brazil, the AP is reporting that the Brazilian government, President Bolsonaro, wanted concessions from the president for that meeting and for his attendance at the Summit of the Americas, that he wouldn't bring up Bolsonaro's casting doubts about Brazil's election system, as well as environmental concerns in the Amazon. Can you confirm that report? I cannot confirm that report. The president is is looking forward to leaving tomorrow to head to the summit, that clearly that we are hosting. I can say this, the United States continues to recognize Juan Guado as the interim president of Venezuela. That said, while the interim government was uh, was not invited uh, to participate in the main summit, they are welcome to participate in all three stakeholder forums and other events. So not sure why she went from Brazil to Venezuela, but maybe it's in the spirit of internationalism and anti-nation state borders. I, I don't think it's that. But that was interesting. And it was it was kind of sad to see her embrace Guado, Guaido, Guado, as she calls him. It's pretty pathetic because he wasn't even invited to be a major player because, of course, he's not because he's not the president. But right. But, you know, I want to say two things in the second part will be about the speaker herself. Um, But uh, um, (laughs) I I do think it's, of course, having, you know, one Guaido who was beat up by people in Venezuela just two days ago. um, It's all over the news and where you have Blinken and Brian Nichols you know, calling him, one of them called him the president, the other one called him the interim president. And so this is, you know, this is a big farce, right? The democracy, so-called democracy summit, where you, you're you claiming that a person who was who's not does not even hold office, was not elected, you're claiming that that's the president of Venezuela, which is, which itself, you know, um, is ridiculous, especially since just a month ago, you flew down, sent your um, representatives to go beg Maduro for oil, um, after sanctioning Russia. So, so there's that. But I also, you know, I, I find it really um, distressing the amount, the number of Black people um, being the face of, of the U.S. empire. And Caroline Jean-Pierre in particular, because she's Haitian American. Um, and the fact that the U.S., the U.S. government's treatment of Haiti is so terrible and so racist. And, and you know, and I also want to point to the fact that you know, since September, um, Biden has deported almost 30,000 Haitians. There's a deportation flight every day, um, you know, leaving here, taking people back to Haiti. And so you have you have these, this terrible treatment of Haiti by the U.S. government, um, by Biden. Then you have this Haitian-American um, um, uh, press secretary, you know, claiming that Juan Guaido is, the, you know, is the president of Venezuela, um, and, and making all these statements about these unelected, undemocratic leaders in the region, to me, is just really jarring. Um, it's the same with having Brian Nichols, who's the Black American, who's in charge of the Western Hemisphere and the State Department. The sa- same as jarring as having Lloyd Austin as the, the head of the Pentagon, as jarring as Linda Thomas-Greenfield as head of the UN. All of these Black people... I feel some of that, too, with Greenfield. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, spouting, yeah, spouting all this, you know, these terrible, really anti-Black imperialist points, you know, talking points for the U.S. government. And so the U.S. can hide behind these Black faces, which 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 makes it, be, you know, very difficult to watch. But it's we definitely nevertheless need to condemn condemn these people and in, in, in their participation and in, 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 in pushing for the empire. I know you've been so generous with your time. We've gone over a little bit, but could you give like a very short, of course, Peter, if you have anything to say about the summit 
And then I also wanted to ask you, Jamima, to just say something about Colombia. Well, let me uh, say very quickly, I thought the summit was a joke. Um, I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it was marked by a kind of diplomatic petulance on the uh, part of the Biden administration that I don't think went over well with anybody, even those people who attended other than Guado and, and uh, Bolsonaro. I, I also think that that this um, is the, the summit was overshadowed by two crises. One is a domestic crises um, that, you know, with inflation uh, that we're seeing here with um, uh, the, the spate of the ongoing spate of gun violence um, that that makes the, the U.S. look like it's it's about to collapse itself. Um, and Biden trying to deny those things, but also the fact that um, since the. Uh, the operations in Ukraine started, um, the, the United States is looking increasingly uh, uh, crazy and, and at the same time isolated on the international stage that, that uh, a lot of people don't support um, what, what Biden is, is, is doing in the Ukraine and, and the war with Russia. Um, and, and people throughout the Caribbean, throughout the Americas are experiencing the blowback of that. First of all, just in the cost of the price of food. And so if you look at the, the, the agenda of the Summit of the Americas, the key things that matter to people in the region were not dealt with in a substantial way. They, 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 they brought up questions of global warming, but didn't address the fact that the Pentagon is the largest emitter of, of CO2s. They, they barely brought up the questions of, of food security that are going to lead to serious problems of, of populations uh, being able to feed themselves in the Americas, especially when, when food supplies are controlled by companies like Monsanto and, and other U.S. corporations. They didn't bring up the, the kind of flooding of, of many of these countries from Jamaica to Haiti to, to, to Mexico uh, with uh, uh, American weapons um, and what that's done to destabilize people. They didn't bring up, as, as Jamino pointed out, the, the kind of questions of immigration that are brought on by these questions of imperial stabilization. And they didn't bring up the, the fact that that many Caribbean states are, are failing, as they like to say, largely because of, of U.S. imperial policy. And, and so um, this, this was a, a, a kind of, um, you know, diplomatic carnival that, that was ultimately meaningless. But if you scratch the surface behind it, you see a, a, a real problem with U.S. hegemony uh, in, in the region. Um, and I think the, the U.S. can't go back at this point. Right. And I wanted to just quickly say one of the good things that happened with the people um, with the with the summit of the Americas is the fact that there were three different um, um, anti summits. Right. So there we had an, an, an anti imperialism summit, which is the weekend before the people's summit, which was all these grassroots organizations in um, the California area from Union del Barrio, Black Alliance for Peace and you know, buy on all these um, um, uh, organizations of people of color coming together and having out their own um, events, like two sets of events. Um, that, and then of course the People's Summit, which which I think got a lot of play. But there's also a worker summit um, that happened in Tijuana. Um, you know, that included the countries that were left out. So what it did, it did allow the space for all these. Um, anti-summit people, grassroots organizations to come together and have our own conversations uh, outside of, of, of this farce. So, um, and so I guess I, I got to talk just quickly about uh, uh, Colombia. Um, I, uh, I was part of a delegation of 29 mostly Black women, um, the largest uh, uh, delegation of, the, of Black women election observers in the history of Colombia. Um, we went to witness um, 
um, the uh, elections that that took uh, that took place on May 29th. Um, this just two weeks ago, and the reason we went is because I don't know if uh, if your uh, your your listeners know, but the two leading candidates are are part of the leftist Pacto Historical. Um, um, Pacto Historico um, Party, where Gustavo Petro, who's a former guerrilla activist turned mayor of Bogota, and Francia Marquez, who um, is a, 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 an Afro, um, Afro-Colombian um, woman activist. Um, and, and since they led, um, you know, once they were running, they were the leading, uh, the, the leading party out of seven, um, seven parties running, they were really receiving a lot of um, death threats. They were, uh, even though they were leading by the polls. And so in a country of a long history of right-wing um, rule, um, it was important for us to make sure that we were able to go and observe these elections. And so the group of us went to Cali and Buenaventura, and we split and we basically went to various different places um, where the elections were happening. And we saw a lot of um, irregularities, particularly irregularities around you know, certain places had more militarized, um, um, uh, the military presence um, were in the poorer and blacker and browner neighborhoods, whereas the, the wealthier parts only had maybe a, a couple of police. Um, and so we saw that, we saw the intimidation, we saw some places had um, um, uh, biometric machines, like the wealthier places had biometric machines, the poor places didn't. And and so, so part of that was just to see, make sure we have these, um, point out these irregularities, but also make sure that people had access to votes, especially in the poor um, Black areas where there's been a lot of intimidation because they're afraid that the poor people will vote for the Pacto Historical ticket. And so the, the, the result of the election was that um, it was a, um, a Petro's party did not get the 50%, but they got a, a, an overwhelming majority. And then the second two parties, um, they, I think they got 40 something, 42% or so, or so. And then the other two, Parties that came close were one with 28% and one with 24%. And so then there's a runoff um, between this extremely Trump-like um, 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 candidate um, who came from out of nowhere. I think his name is Hernandez. And, you know, through his TikToks or whatever, but his old billionaire um, Trump-like guy versus this Pacto Historical, which is a, a, a coalition of leftist parties. And so that, so now the, uh, the the runoff is this weekend on the 19th. And so we're keeping our fingers crossed um, uh, that all will go well. Yeah. We had um, Ali Vargas and Camila Escalante come on and talk about that. But I definitely Great. am glad to hear from you about what you witnessed because they actually they weren't there. They gave their perspective. They're very informed perspective from, right. from Bolivia. Right. But you'll have to send me photos if you have any. Yeah, we have a lot. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Any final statements that you want to share or plugs? I want to say shout out to my man, uh, Clifton Joseph, Joseph up in Toronto, who's uh, tuning in right now. Yeah. <laughs> Peter's a Canadian. He always I could, comes I, Yeah, I could, t- I could tell. Yeah. I could tell the whole time. <laughs> I was biting my tongue. Are you from yeah. Toronto? Vancouver. Oh, Vancouver? It's funny. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought you were from more of the Toronto area. I co-host with Aaron Mate, one of my okay. shows, but okay. uh, yeah. he but he doesn't really have an accent. Not really. <laughs> to get rid of it? I guess he did. Yeah, he worked overtime <laughs> to get rid of it. Yeah. I wanted to just quickly say, I do think, so um, we, I do think people should take the time and read um, the New York Times um, um, report, uh, story in Haiti, but also read all the stuff that came out um, 
you know, there, there, there's a list of, uh, uh, there's a bibliography. I think, Peter, you, you could talk about that briefly, just, just how they, they documented all this stuff. But I also think people need to pay attention to what's going on in Haiti now, read about what's going on currently. You know, we publish a lot about Haiti in the Black Agenda Report. And of course, we have a whole Haiti American team with the Black Alliance for Peace. And so I do think um, that, that there's a crisis in Haiti right now. There's a crisis of government. Haiti is, to me, is, is, is a colony. There's no government. There's no time for vote. No one's talking about uh, elections. And that was the thing that was saddening to me about being in Colombia is the fact that they can actually have elections. And whereas in Haiti, <laughs> there's no elections because the U.S., France, and Canada basically dismantled the Haitian state. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember, that the, the Haitian state is no longer um, a, a self-functioning state. That is that that it's that the Ottawa initiative in terms of having like this um, this government that they wanted to put in place, that it, it, it basically succeeded. And so we're waiting, we're hoping for another revolution. And, and I would I would um, add to that that I, again I think um, Jimmy is right. You know the New York Times did publish uh, an extensive uh, bibliographical essay where where they were very deliberate in listing all of their archival and journalistic and academic sources that they used. They, through, through via uh, GitHub, they actually published um, or uploaded a lot of their archival materials. And I think people should make use of that to, to extend or, or critique the New York Times. I also think it's important to acknowledge that the, the Black Alliance for Peace has compiled um, a, something like a 40 page Haiti America syllabus that really brings a lot of these questions of, of Haiti and U.S. imperialism up to date in, in the presence. And that's available through the Black Alliance for Peace website. Um, I'd really, really encourage people um, to, to take a look at that, uh, to read those articles, uh, to share it with your friends and neighbors in Canada or wherever it is, um, and, and uh, just be informed. I mean, I think education is uh, uh, the one thing we really need right now. And I'm also going to plug this book right here. Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean, by none other than our distinguished guest. I started reading it. It's very good. Thank you. It's a great book. Yeah, it's really good. Very, very, it gets you from the beginning. Yes. Can't say that about all books. Right. Especially a book about bankers, right? Yeah, I know. Seriously. <laughs> I was like, oh God, here I go. I'm going to have to try to pay attention, have a lot of coffee, but it was great. Yeah. So hard recommend. Yeah. Thank you for that. Of course. And thank you guys so much for coming on. Come back. We loved having you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having Thanks yeah, for having Bye. Okay. That was great, everyone. Wow. I'm very, I feel very blessed by those two guests. Very excited that we had them on. Also, I got to remind people to become Patreon supporters. That show was so important. They both spoke about such important things that don't get enough attention. So that's going to be public, but of course you can still support it at Patreon patreon.com slash the Katie Halper show. And it's worth becoming patrons because there's so much other great Patreon only content. So what do we got? We're going to have a Michael Hudson interview soon. Richard Wolf. It's a great interview that I did with Richard Wolf. It's both like about politics, but it's also about personal stuff. It's so interesting. In fact, another time I'm going to play a, a clip of it. We got Susan Sarandon, a long chat with Susan Sarandon, and we're having going to have some Roger Waters coming soon down the pike. Thank you again to everyone who's in the audience, to our guests, to Brad, to Tyler. All right, Katie Halper Show family. We will see you next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Halper Show. 
If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.